Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is August 31st, 2016, and I am your host, William Hill, as usual. Uh, today we have the pleasure of sitting down and, and talking with a man who has written a book that is uh, extremely relevant uh, for the climate of our church today, especially in the PCA, but it also impacts other uh, NAPARC uh, reformed denominations across the United States and elsewhere. Uh, but he has written a book, Historic Christianity and the Federal Vision, a Theological Analysis and Practical Evaluation. And we're going to get to that discussion in just a minute. Let me tell everybody wh- what is going on at the seminary. Uh, currently, uh, w- uh, the fall semester of 2016 has has successfully uh, taken off, as it were. Convocation was held um, last week, and um, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago, and um, Dr. Our, our, our Nick Batsik gave the the, uh, the address to the students as the new semester began, and, and that is widely available online if you would like to download and listen to that convocation address that was given uh, by Pastor Nick Batsik um, there uh, at the seminary. In addition to that, um, we, of course, at the podcast are continuing to work on uh, new programs and um, other features. And one of the features that we are beginning to do, actually there's two, uh, we are spotlighting uh, and highlighting some of our graduates, the work and ministry that they're doing across the country and the world. And so uh, each month we'll be doing small segments with various graduates of Greenville Seminary. So look forward to that. In addition to that, we're four times a year going to be doing um, biography reports from men who have studied and uh, have examined the lives of various men that were very accustomed to hearing their names, uh, men like John Owen and, and Jonathan Edwards and, and, and so forth. And so we'll be interviewing men on those particular men of the past, the giants of the faith that we stand upon their shoulders. And so look forward to those new segments um, as we get them all finalized and ready to roll out. If you want to know more information about the seminary, of course, you can go to the website, gpts.edu, and there you can uh, access all the resources, information, schedules, and programs that the seminary is currently involved in. And again, uh, just to remind the listeners that the seminary depends largely upon the donations of her supporters. And this year is no different than any other year. Uh, The seminary needs your help, both in prayer and in financial assistance. So if you're able to help the seminary in any way, um, please do so. Um, If you want to help support this podcast, which is an extension of the seminary, please do so. You can do that at the website, gpts.edu, and you can just click on the donate button there and follow the instructions to help the seminary continue to train men for the gospel ministry. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with um, an author who has written a book, Historic Christianity and the Federal Vision. Um, The gentleman I am referring to is Pastor Dewey Roberts. He's the pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Dustin, Florida, and he's been in the pastorate now for 40-some years, a graduate of RTS, and that's the one in Jackson. So, uh, Pastor Roberts, Dewey, it's good to have you on the program to talk about this very important subject uh, before us. Thank you very much, Bill. It's my pleasure to be here with you today, and I look forward to this. Absolutely. Now, now, when I first came across the book, I thought, well, you know, I thought maybe this issue of the federal vision, um, especially in the PCA, uh, was kind of relegated to the back seat. Um, it's kind of a dead issue or dying issue within our denomination. But, but apparently, as you lay the issues out in this book, that really isn't the case, is it? No, it's not a dead issue by any means. There's certain people, of course, that certain trials that have taken place where we know that individuals have uh, been uh, permitted to stay that have views that are very questionable in our denomination. But more than that, there are lots of people across the denomination who have gotten involved in this, even if they are unwilling to come out and identify themselves with a flag that says Federal Vision yet they are influenced by these things, and they are teaching that to their congregations. And so it's not a dead issue by any means. Yep. Now, when we talk about the federal vision, and as I mentioned to you off-air, I still come across people in in my path who, when they hear the words federal vision, they look at me like deer in the headlights. They're like, you know, what is the federal vision? You know, how do you define it? Um, You know, can you give the listeners... Um, a summary of the essential aspects of the federal vision in, in some way that helps people understand it, they can get their hands around? 
Well, the word federal really refers to the uh, doctrine of the covenant, that federal agreement uh, between God and man, whereby he enters into a covenant with us. And so they have come up with a new vision of the covenant, uh, and yet their new vision is really just an old vision. It's the same old way of legalism, salvation, uh, that has been perpetuated in the in the church ever since the beginning, and actually even predates the church uh, in that respect. And where this throws people a lot of times is that they think that legalism is confined just to salvation by moral works. But legalism in the history of the doctrine has also, it's in the scripture, you see this, and I can refer to some things, but also in the history of the doctrine, it it also concerns salvation by ceremonial works, such Mm -hmm. as in the Old Testament, circumcision, the partaking of the Passover. In the New Testament, uh, it is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, we have those uh, sacraments, but their twist on it is that those things, and by partaking in them, that that is what makes you holy and righteous before God and gives you your standing. So they are denying the gospel thereby and replacing it with either moral or ceremonial works of righteousness. So this is just a perpetuation of legalism, and I think it is the most complete the doctrine of legalism that the church has ever faced. It is kind of like legalism come to its own, and that's why it's so dangerous. It sounds a lot like Rome. It is Rome, and in fact, it even goes back beyond and before Rome, but it's very similar to what you have in the development of Rome, and that's why some of the people who get involved in this end up migrating right on over to Rome, because that's where their home is. Uh, And some of them, others of them stay in the Reformed denominations or other denominations, uh, and they simply try to corrupt from within. Now, you wrote this book. It's a lengthy um, treatment, um, and it's laid out in a a very helpful way, frankly. Um, The title of it is Historic Christianity and the Federal Vision, and you deal um, really with every doctrinal issue that the Federal Vision either touches on or infringes upon, um, and in fact violates in in numerous ways. Um, And of course, we don't have the time on this program to deal with every doctrinal issue that you spell out, but the the table of contents um, lists the Federal Vision and Regeneration, the Federal Vision and Imputation, the Federal Vision and Apostasy, and it just goes on and on. Uh, through all of these different um, loci of theology. But what what doctrinal issues, um, and if you can summarize, I realize this will be a difficult thing to do, but what critically doctrinal issues does the Federal Vision uh, broach, does it violate, as it pertains to our historic understanding of the Christian faith? I think the one that is oftentimes overlooked, and it's really the after kind of an introduction into the federal vision in my first chapter, I deal with that, and that's regeneration. And I think that that's the most essential, uh, and it most defines what the federal vision is. Uh, It is something that I discovered as I began to research this and saw that the federal vision had come out with this statement, this joint profession of their views. Uh, Some of the men who signed that either are or were in the PCA at the time and others of them in uh, various other denominations, particularly the CREC. Uh, And what they said about that was a very confused statement that as I began to take this apart theologically, uh, I found that the history of that, of their statement concerning regeneration was a denial of regeneration. It had always been considered uh, when they uh, said that man does not have an essence that can be changed. Uh, And uh, Charles Hodge deals a lot with this, but other 
theologians as well. And so that's the most troubling aspect to me, because without the necessity of regeneration, everything ultimately is based back upon man. And that is the direction that many in the federal vision have already gone in denying regeneration, or else the others are on that same path and are willing to be in fellowship with those who have denied regeneration, which for myself, I cannot have a common fellowship with someone who denies regeneration, not concerning mm-hmm. the Christian faith. That's a fundamental article of the faith. When when they say that that man's the essence of man cannot be changed, how is that different from the nature of man, or is it the same thing, or do they mean it the same way? Well, you know, when when they talk about the essence of man being changed, they're trying to uh, make the whole matter of regeneration something that is physical in nature, as though he has some substance that has to be changed. And that's not what regeneration does. It, it changes uh, our hearts, it changes our motives, it changes our principles, it changes our perspective, it changes our goals and our desires. But it doesn't make some physical or substantial change to us in the way that they are seeking to deny it. But in denying, in saying that man doesn't have some kind of physical nature to be changed, what they do is that they deny regeneration altogether. Hmm. And and so, in your opinion, that's the that's one of the most destructive positions that the federal vision violates um, in their theological assessment of this whole covenantal issue. Yes, it is. I I put that chapter first, even though uh, what I had originally intended to do in my book was to deal, first of all, with some preliminary things and then go through soteriology. But I had to pull regeneration out of where soteriology would have been uh, and put it at the beginning because everything hinges off of that. Mm -hmm. If regeneration is not absolutely necessary and essential, uh, which is denied by at least some in the federal vision, uh, they deny that regeneration is necessary and essential, then that changes everything else, and it makes salvation something that is dependent upon man's efforts rather than God's grace in renewing us. Yep. Well, I probably got the cart before the horse, which is not unusual for me. Um, you wrote the book for what purpose? Why, why invest the time? Um, there's obviously other books out there um, that deal with these with this subject as well, and so why this book, and why now? Because, first of all, I felt that the books that were already out there, while offering a lot of good help and everything, did not deal as thoroughly with the Federal Vision problem uh, as what I thought needed to be done. Uh, And it limited many times the range of doctrines to five or six or seven doctrines, and did not cover how the federal vision deals with other doctrines of the faith. Uh, For instance, there's no other book out there that really goes into the depth on the matter of regeneration, which we just talked about, as my book does, uh, and other things like that. So, And then also, I deal with my book in a different way than Mm -hmm. others do. I put Mm -hmm. it more in historical context rather than dealing with it as a standalone temporary contemporary problem of the present generation i see the connection with the things that have been uh, the church has gone through in the past with uh, various theologians who have erred from the faith well when you talk about historic christianity what what what, what exactly do you have in mind i mean okay so some might make the argument, well, just because um, people taught X, Y, Z in the 1500s or the 1100s or even in the uh, ancient church doesn't necessarily make that um, as itself um, a, a slam-dunk argument against 
what the Federal Vision people are necessarily teaching. So why bring historic Christianity to the forefront in the book? Um, it's not as though that's the only thing you do, of course. You bring tons of scripture to the equation um, throughout the entire book. Um, but why focus on the historic side of the argument over against what the Federal Vision individuals are necessarily teaching? Okay, uh, that's a good question. I'm going to try to answer that in uh, two different parts. Uh, first of all, uh, the matter of appealing to historic Christianity, and I can see where some people would look at that and they would say, well, we're not involved with what the traditions of the past were. It's interesting that at the time of the Protestant Reformation, both the Reformers and the Catholics appealed to church history and the great theologians of the past, different mm -hmm. ones, but they appealed to mm -hmm. them. Uh, and they did so because they believed that, well, they were trying to say that what they were teaching was something that had been the history of the church in the past, but they were appealing to different people. Uh, in my study through all of this, I found that there have always been two basic systems. Uh, one has been the scriptural system, uh, justification by faith, and the other doctrines that go along with that, that has been perpetuated in the history of the Church, both before the Reformation and afterwards. And the other has been legalism in its various modes that has been perpetuated, either work salvation through moral righteousness or ceremonial righteousness, and all of the views that flow out of that. Uh, right. And, and that's in, it's important to realize that the Reformers did not simply rediscover something that had been completely dormant and dead for 1,500 years up until their time. There is a, a chain that goes all the way back. Uh, and some people say, well, yes, there were some people who believed in justification by faith before the Reformation, but many people did not. By the same token, I would say there are some people today who believe in justification by faith, but as we look about us in the Church, there are many people who do not. So that doesn't prove that uh, the, the doctrine is not there in the period before the Reformation simply because many people did not believe in it. Uh, it was there. There was a, a faithful testimony all the way through, both before and afterwards. Uh, and now I think I've forgotten the second way in which I was going to. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it does prompt the next question, though, in a sense, that says, well, you know, aren't we the aren't we a church that's reformed and always reforming? And 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 I've heard Federal Vision individuals make that statement as though we've now, uh, as it were, ascended to a new theological understanding of these matters. And and it's hard to discuss the subject of the Federal Vision without bringing N.T. Wright to the equation and his new perspectives on Paul. And they are somewhat linked, though not absolutely correlated, but they are linked in some way. Um, I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, aren't, aren't we a church that's supposed to be reforming? Is, well, does that apply reforming. to theology as well? We are reforming, but we're always reforming back to the Scripture. And this brings me, thank you for asking that question that way, that brings me back to, I can answer this one the same way I was thinking of doing to your previous question as a second means, and that is that when I got involved in this, both in the as a juror on the Standing Judicial Commission of the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, I found that when I was involved in cases I, that where the federal vision was involved as an issue, I found that they always tried to do this dance about the issues. First of all, they would say. Well, we believe in the Westminster Confession, but we find the Scripture is pushing us in a different direction. And then you say, okay, well, let's talk about those Scriptures. And they say, well, you know, uh, we don't take the same view of interpretation as the Re Reformed Church has always taken these passages, and there are these other people in Church history uh, that have taken these views. And then you say, well, but those views are wrong. And they say, well, but, you know, there were some people who held these views, and they were among the Reformed Church, etc., you know. 
And so it's always kind of going around in a circle with them. And so therefore, in my book, what I tried to do was deal with three components. Uh, first of all, uh, the scripture. Uh, secondly, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And thirdly, uh, historical, the great theologians of the past, historical theology. Uh, and uh, what you find with them is that they are always when they get into a dispute with us about theology, they're taking the position that is Arminian, semi-Pelagian, or Pelagian, or Roman, Romish, Popish uh, in uh, interpretation, or they are appealing to people in church history uh, that were uh, people that were outside of the mainstream of Reformed theology and whose views were rejected by people in their own day. Uh, and so this colors everything that they do. So we are to be reforming, but our reforming is always to take us back to the Scripture, not uh, to lead us into a position where we know something that nobody else has ever known, because that's mm. a dangerous position. Uh, in writing this book, I started out with the premise, I'm not smart enough to write this book myself, and so I'm going to tie myself to the greatest minds in church history, to the greatest commentators of the Scripture, and to the great confessions, uh, and those will give me the guidance I need. That's the exact opposite of what the Federal Vision is doing. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, it's well said that you know even as pastors, um, in our sermon preparations, if, if we come if we land on an interpretation of a passage and consult four or five reputable commentaries on the subject and none of them even mentioned one iota of what we just met, just said just landed on we probably need to reevaluate um, you know yeah. it's important to to get insight it's not that we have infallible knowledge just because we're sitting in our studies doing this and and I think that's the key issue here is that the federal vision seems to um, that they it's as though they've been they've come to something brand new but but it's interesting though when you talk to them one of the comments they typically make and i've seen this done multiple times is that we just don't understand them how do you respond right. to that well it's interesting that they think that they can have a movement that is popular will reach the common man and yet uh, people who have been trained as seminarians or theologians simply cannot understand them. Uh, and interestingly enough, the charge which they oftentimes make against us who disagree with them is that we are guilty of Gnosticism. And I think that goes back to the fact that uh, that charge historically has been made against people who hold to the innate sinfulness of mankind from birth. Uh, and yet... I think that they are guilty of a type of Gnosticism. That is, you have to be on the inside of their group, supposedly, to understand it. And since we're not on the inside, we can't understand it. And that's a dangerous position, because if they cannot communicate their views in such a way as we can understand it, even if we disagree with it, then their view is something... First of all, I believe they don't understand, and I came hmm. to that conviction uh, as hmm. I was researching and writing the book, that they don't even understand what they believe. Uh, and secondly, it's a very dangerous position uh, if they cannot communicate it in a way that the average Christian can understand it. Yeah, that, mean, yeah, that creates difficulty. It. it because one of our jobs as ministers is to communicate the truths of the gospel and the doctrines of the scriptures to those that God has put in our care. And if we can't communicate it in a way that they understand it, what good is it for them? Exactly. Yeah, interesting point. Now, in a lot of ways, as you're describing this 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 issue with you know that, that we don't simply don't understand them, I, I couldn't help but think that oftentimes, and I'm not saying it's a cult, but it reminds me of a cultic mentality 
that unless we're in the inner circle of the men who hold to these views, um, then we're kind of outside, you know, outside looking in. And I mean, the, the, to me, that's the definition of cultic mentalities. I'm not saying they are one and don't, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm simply making the argument that when a person is um, that um, closed off to the rest of the church, uh, because we don't understand what they're saying, um, that's just inherently dangerous, isn't it? It is, and, and I have the same impression of it as well, and that is that you go back once again to the fact that you have to be an initiate. You have to be on the inside, and then you can understand it. Uh, and that's a, a very dangerous position, uh, because we're supposed to preach the gospel uh, to the whole world, uh, in such a way that everybody uh, can at least be aware that they are called to believe in Christ. But if our words are such that the person on the outside can't even understand us, we don't have a message for them. Uh, and that's a dangerous position to be in. Yep. In Chapter 11 of the book, you deal with the, the Reformed symbols. Um, I, I was quickly scanning through the table of contents, and I was looking for the issue on the Lord's Supper, because this is one of those aspects of their their views and their doctrine that um, causes us great angst and trouble, and it troubles the Church, frankly. But is chapter 11 where you deal with the Reformed symbols, is, is this where you get into the subject of the Lord's Supper and baptism? Well, And there's actually, there is a reason why I'm asking this question. It's leading to another one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think it's chapter 7 and 8 that I'm really going to be dealing with that more. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, what do you mean by the Reformed symbols, then? Uh, reformed, uh, reformed symbols refers to the uh, Reformed uh, confessions and creeds, okay. the symbols of our faith. Uh, and uh, their view on the Reformed creeds and confessions, in that they are, I mentioned earlier how they many times will say that they believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith and then turn around and deny the very things that it teaches. Uh, and their system is really one that is an anti-creedal system. They don't really like creeds and confessions unless it's something that they have devised themselves in their own right. uh, profession, which then still leaves them plenty of wiggle room on a lot of different sides and, uh, and everything. But they don't like creeds and confessions. So they are more of an anti-creedal movement than anything else. Well, one Federal Vision proponent who uh, I know personally, I've actually had him in my house um, many, many years ago, um, made the following comment, and your book highlights this, we have allowed our theological system to become a filter through which we read the Word of God. Now, when you read that in isolation, if you didn't know anything about the individual who wrote it, that when I read that, it, and if I could divorce my mind from the reality of who said it and under what context, I recognize that we all need to be very careful that our theological system doesn't supplant the Word of God but at the same time, we also believe that, as a minister of the gospel, you and I both have taken vows to uphold the Westminster Standards as a good summary of what the Scriptures teach, on those subjects anyway, of which it teaches. And, and so, how do, you, how do you respond to that fairly? Okay, so, knowing who said it, um, I know why it was said, just for the reasons you just pointed out, that they don't like creeds and confessions, but... But is there not a danger of, uh, uh, in the church in general that we can't allow our theological system to affect uh, what the scriptures actually say? I mean, what's the what's the connection? You know, first of all, the way that creeds and confessions developed was not that they came along first and therefore then formed uh, the understanding of the church. What happened was that there were false things that were being taught. And mm -hmm. the Church came together to formulate what they believed about these things so that they could have a response and so that they could help other people to be guarded from that. So the, the creeds and confessions came second 
not first. First of all, there was that controversy that they were having to deal with and false teaching, and then the creeds were formulated. Uh, So I think the idea that the creeds come first uh, is something that is wrong. It hasn't come first in the history of the Church, and we don't believe that it is supposed to come first for us. That is, that they are secondary even for us. Uh, They are subordinate standards for us. The uh, Word of God, of course, is uh, the... The Westminster Confession of Faith makes that very clear. The Word of God is, first of all, uh, for our faith. And then the great confessions and creeds simply have been formulated to help us understand those things. Uh, How many of us would have a good understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity if we had to come to it all on our own without the battles that the Church had fought in the past and the way that they formulated that doctrine so that Mm -hmm. Christians would know what to believe about that. Uh, It's very important for us to understand uh, the faith uh, that other people have helped to formulate in God's providence uh, and so that we can understand that we are not alone, uh, that we are part of a, a larger group. Yeah, outstanding answer, and that's exactly what I was, I guess, baiting you to say, um, that much of what we understand uh, in historic Christianity came out of numerous battles of doctrinal issues that were seriously uh, in need of discussion. Um, you know, the, the the person and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and, and you have the Nicene Council, and um, you have um, all these different creeds, the ecumenical creeds of the Church throughout the first a uh, thousand years of the church uh, helped form a lot of these issues that we now hold as uh, doctrinally sound. And, and it, to me, it seems that the federal vision is basically telling us that for the first 2,000 years of the church, it's, we've had it all wrong. And um, because we've either misread Paul or misread the Bible. And so giants of the faith throughout history have just plain out, had just flat out missed this somehow. And, um, and now they've got it correct, and therefore uh, we need to all adjust our creeds and confessions to support their uh, jello, their their mushy understanding of justification, regeneration, the atonement, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper. I mean, we could go on and on. So, um, well, to me, and the interesting thing is that even though they don't like the creeds that have been compiled in the past, what they want to do is to become the source of the new creed, the new faith the new right. things of what we believe for the church. So they want to replace all that's in the past by their stuff. And what and, and, and just leads me to the end conclusion is that, well, where was the Holy Spirit for the last 2,000 years? Um, if, in fact, we are diametrically different when it comes to these doctrines, what was the Holy Spirit doing for the last 2,000 years? Uh, misleading the church? And now we've been awakened to the truth of these matters and we should adjust? I mean, it's almost the same argument you can make about hyperpreterism. Um, again, yeah. another heresy of the Church that is relatively new, as it were, um, that, again, the same question comes to the front. It's like, okay, so what was the Spirit doing when, when great men like Calvin, Luther, um, uh, you know, were studying the Scriptures and writing their commentaries and dealing with these issues, and how come they never mentioned it? You know, uh, in Burkhoff's book on uh, historic, on the Christian historical theology, I forget the name of it, but the particular title of his book, but in that book he talks about the fact that you can see that uh, the big issues were dealt with first on the Trinity, uh, the person of Christ, the Holy Spirit, etc., and coming down through church history, then you come to the time of the Protestant Reformation, and that's when the doctrines of salvation were dealt with and clarified in a creedal form, and you have a number of creeds of the church after that time that have clarified Mm -hmm. this issue in the same vein as the Reformers did, Uh, the Westminster Confession being just one of those uh, creedal statements. Uh, But all of them are consistent all the way through that. And he's saying that he said that that the only thing that remains 
for the church to clarify would be the doctrine of the last things, that everything else has already been clarified. Uh, and that's the position that I hold. I don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel on these things, because these battles have already been fought, and the Holy Spirit has already led his church into an understanding of the way of salvation. Uh, mm. And so we don't have to redefine what salvation is. But the Federal Vision is doing that. They're trying to redefine it. Yep, I agree. I, you know, it's. Uh, I think the book you're referring to is the History of Christian Doctrine by Burkhoff. Yes. Yes. It's that supplement. It's a supplement work to his um, summary of Christian doctrine, and they probably should be read together. Um, but just for the listeners' sake, just wanted to get that that's title right. out there. That's right. For that's them. A, that's so, what I was thinking of. Let's talk a little bit about um, baptism. Um, it, it, there's been a number of works put out by Federal Vision advocates. Um, the Baptized Body by Peter Lighthart is one of them that I'm thinking of, and there's other such works as that. Um, it seems that that the baptism and the Lord's Supper get a lot of press around the Federal Vision issues, um, namely um, the relationship of infant baptism to our covenant children as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm sure you've heard in, in your research uh, the charge that uh, many, if many of the Federal Vision advocates, I won't say all, but many, um, seem to subscribe and hold to uh, the doctrine of Pado communion Was that your discovery as you were researching this? Yes, absolutely. They, most of them, I would say, hold to that. I would probably... Now, you know, I, I want to back up here and say something, though, and that is that a person can fall into the era of the federal vision uh, and be from a non-Presbyterian or non-Reformed denomination. They can be from a Baptist or congregational denomination, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, and they can still fall into this so that they wouldn't necessarily face the matter of of pedo baptism and pedo communion. But those who are in the Reformed community, in the larger sense, uh, who have also gone into the federal vision, they almost invariably fall into a pedo communion as well. Yeah, I think you had so, some other question, some other aspect. Yeah, of so, so why why is that? I mean, and, and how is that directly related to their understanding of the covenant? Well, first of all, they believe that when the child is baptized, he is made into a Christian. I have a mm. friend of mine who was in, who preached at my installation, and has also preached at. I mean, at my ordination, I was also preached at installation services of, in which I was installed as a pastor at churches. And he said recently to a mutual friend of ours that he used to think that he was saved when he was 16 or 17 years old. Now he knows that he became a Christian when he was baptized as an infant. And that becomes their view in thinking that they become a Christian at the time that they are baptized. And if they just continue faithfully in that they will be saved uh, well, let me let me let me stop you. let me let me let me interrupt you there just uh, want to clarify a couple things um, when you say they become a Christian you're talking about that they were regenerated at baptism so baptismal regeneration is what I think you're referring to is that right yes but some of them even go beyond that you know there is um one person rich Lusk, who's put out a book in which he said that Pedo faith, yep. Pedo faith. The... He said that you, we baptize the child on the basis of the faith that that infant has. So <laughs> uh, if that infant has faith, uh, then, you know, they and they have believed in Christ, and, then they are a Christian in that sense. But, uh, he, you know, I don't see how he can really work that out consistently to be able to say, and he certainly can't from the Scripture, uh, but to say that, an infant of two months old who is unconscious of, I mean, they're conscious, but they're not, they're not going to remember what is happening. And they're not aware. They're not conscious in the way that you and I are. So how does that differ? Yeah, how does that differ then from the Reformed understanding of baptism? Are you talking about baptismal regeneration? Yeah, how does their view of baptism and how it's applied to the infant differ from our understanding of 
from uh, when I say our, uh, those who hold to the historic position of baptism as it applies to the infant, how is, how is their view different from ours in substance? You know, the several great theologians have written, and I believe with them, that, that infant baptism per se is not a, the, the way that baptism is supposed to be performed in that uh, baptism is for adults, uh, but that the argument of the covenant and our covenant relationship with him is, for instance, through Acts, the second chapter, and other places in the scripture, the household baptisms, etc., cetera, uh, make uh, us understand that we can have our children baptized, but it's not a proper baptism, that baptism is for those who have believed. And so I think that he's trying to push the issue back, but we would simply say that our baptism of our infants does not make them a child of God. It does not regenerate them. It is a sign of our taking and placing the sign of the covenant upon them and understanding that they are in that covenant, but then we still preach the gospel to them as they're mm-hmm. growing up, and we do not allow them simply to think, well, you were saved, you were regenerated, you became a Christian back when you were baptized. Now, what they, they might do is repent and believe now. Yeah, but you, but they might push back and say, well, then, if that's the case, you can't say to your child, Jesus loves you. How do we respond to that? Because I don't obviously I believe that the covenant children that are baptized in the church, I can say Jesus loves you. You're in his covenant. But how would yeah. we respond to that? I've actually heard that argument. That's why I'm asking it. <laughs> right. Well, I think that for the most part I think in many respects we are given the comfort in scripture that of course God is going to be a God to us and to our children after us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, therefore, on that basis, we make a statement like that. But that does not mean that it's an infallible rule. The fact of the matter is that even for the federal vision, it is not something that is an infallible rule. And they have to acknowledge that, that there are children who grow up uh, and who reject the signs that were placed upon them regardless of their particular definition of what takes place in that transaction. And so neither side believes that every particular child uh, will uh, become a Christian as a result of this. They believe that there's a falling away of some. And we understand, we know of examples where people were raised by godly parents who had them baptized as infants and who trained them in the Christian faith, and then they rejected it later. Yep. And well, let me remind you of yours. Yet we cannot, we presume that that child is a child of, the, of grace. Uh, and we do tell them that God loves them. And, of course, there is a... Sometimes we theologize too much upon some statement like that. For instance, the Scripture says concerning the rich young ruler uh, that Christ looked upon him and loved him. Uh, and I remember Al Martin preaching a sermon one time about that, and he says sometimes he said we can try to theologize about that too much. The fact of the matter is that Christ looked on him and loved him. And mm-hmm. so we can say to our children, uh, Jesus loves you. Yep. Well, I'm, you know, and, and as far as the falling away is concerned, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Hebrews 6, of those who have tasted of the of the gospel, they've witnessed it, they've been in the covenant community, they've been privileged to all the means of grace, the preaching of God's Word, witnessing the sacraments being performed, and still reject the gospel, and that's a very dangerous place to be. So, um, And, and yeah. if I may interrupt you there, because that's something that I've been... I've got a lecture I'm doing over in Russia in a couple of weeks at a pastor's conference I lead, and one of the things is about the common operations of the Holy Spirit. And the mm-hmm. thing that I've studied out from the Scripture upon this issue in preparation for that lecture is that the very things that the, the Federal Vision says are things that are given to every baptized person, the Scripture never says that those things are given to them. For instance, they say that you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you are justified by faith, uh, you are given a, a regeneration, and they go through, a, you have true fellowship with Christ. When you go to Rome, Hebrews 6, very clear that there's a distinction between 
the things that true believers get and unbelievers get. But the point is, nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that a an unbeliever gets true justifying faith or truly right. repents or has truly a new heart or any of those things. Such things as that are not common operations of the Holy Spirit. And that is a fundamental flaw in the federal vision theory. Well, I think one of the, you know, as I listen to you talk, and I'm thinking through this a little bit more, um, if in fact baptism does save um, the child, then how is it that it's possible for them to fall away? Does this not then strike at the doctrine of assurance? Well, it strikes at assurance, and it also strikes at perseverance. And, you yep. know, Bill, that was the... Perseverance was the thing that first... It was the first key that got me involved in seeing that this stuff was wrong. Mm. When I mm-hmm. first came in into a knowledge of what was being taught, because I heard this phrase by this mutual friend of ours who was one of my best friends in seminary, and you said you had him in your home. You know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. He said that... When you're baptized, you get everything that Christ has to give you, and if you persevere in it, you'll be saved. So what that does is that it makes perseverance conditional rather than certain. But the Scripture talks about is perseverance that is certain. Uh, That's right. Because it is something that is according to God's grace, and therefore, since it depends on God, it doesn't depend on us. We are to persevere, but we persevere by His grace, and we are kept by the power of God unto a salvation, ready to be revealed to us in the last day. So it is not something that we do in and of ourselves. Uh, and the and I'm very uh, thankful for that, frankly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Because if it was left up to us, every one of us would apostatize and, and fall away. But it's not left up to us. So therefore, that's the thing that really helped me to see. This stuff is wrong. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, we're running short on time. I do want to ask uh, the the big question that I, I've jotted down here. Um, um, it, 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 clearly, the PCA, uh, I wouldn't say primarily, but the PCA mainly, I mean, I think it's been a bigger issue in the PCA maybe than in other NAPARC denominations. And when I say NAPARC, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm talking about the North, okay, let me see, North American Presbyterian Reformed Churches, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, so that's a, it's, it's a fraternity, if you want to use that word, of relational reform bodies that are in fraternal relations with one another. So, um, in other words, we're friendly to each other, but we're not necessarily in the same denomination and maybe have some different distinctives, but we're friendly to one another. And so all the NAPARC denominations have, 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 vetoed the federal vision, have written papers on this issue. But the PCA seems to be the one that's wrestling with it the most. And so I guess the million-dollar question is, why are we still dealing with this issue in our denomination? Both you and I are PCA ministers in the Presbyterian Church in America, and why are we still dealing with this? Why isn't this just gone? Well, you know, in our denomination, there were always people who kicked back against even having a study committee on this matter, and they did not want us to to do that. Uh, they thought that it was unwise. They thought that we needed to just leave these the progressives alone in our denomination, and uh, that they were doing great things, and that we should just allow them to do it. As I looked at various documents of the document of the churches that have spoken against it, the interesting thing to me was that even though the PCA came last in the order, their statement against the federal vision new perspectives, et cetera, was the weakest of those denominations. And when I went to sit down with Dr. Morton Smith up at his home in Brevard, North Carolina, uh, so that uh, we could uh, take his statements down for the the introduction forward to this book that I wrote, he made a statement to me that really kind of puts everything into perspective. He was talking about how liberalism got into the PCUS. He said that, and he talked about the cases that had been in the Northern Presbyterian Church, but in the Southern Presbyterian Church, he said that people tried to deal with it more on a gentlemanly level. That is, just to let each other 
have their different views and to not really deal with it in the church courts and bring heresy cases, etc. He was talking about how Machen had been the subject of a heresy charge against him, even though he was orthodox completely, but he was mm-hmm. uh, charged of heresy because of the denomination going heretical. Uh, and so therefore his orthodoxy was heretical to them. But we dealt with it in the South with more of a gentlemanly approach. And as I've thought about that a lot, I've thought that's exactly what the PCA is trying to do. And in fact, I know that that's what they're trying to do because having served on the SJC, I found along the way that they kind of lost their stomach for dealing with these issues. And they thought it was better on the Standing Judicial Commission and in the courts of our church to just allow people to have their views and not to make such a big issue about it. Uh, Particularly after the Louisiana Presbytery case caused the uh, folding of that presbytery so that some churches had to go in one presbytery, some had to go into another, some into another, but the presbytery as a whole no longer exists. I think that the PCA just lost its stomach for dealing with it, which means, of course, they didn't have much stomach to begin with. But that's a very dangerous position to take because what that means is that you have this cancer inside of you and you're going to do nothing about it. You're just going to let it grow. Yeah, and what else will then grow out of that same pandemic that uh, affects the church? And, you know, where does it end? It it, kind of just keeps moving even into other areas and maybe even if they're tangential. Now, how does this, you know, okay, so why should the average Christian, um, you know, you you and I spend our time and our week, our, our week, you know, reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, working on sermons, reading theology. Um, it's our calling in life. Of course, Christians should be doing that too, um, not just pastors. But why should the pew sitter, for lack of a better way of expressing it, that the non-ordained members of the church uh, even care about this? What what does it matter? Why don't they just leave it up to us to fight it or not fight it, as the case may be? Um, Why should they understand this, and why should they read the book? You know, I think I can answer that question, first of all, by reference to something that happened at one of the pastor's conferences that I lead in St. Petersburg every year. A few years ago, there was a man, an American layman, who was involved in a Reformed church off in uh, the eastern part of Russia, is central or eastern, somewhere up beyond the Ural Mountains. And he flew out there, and he, he told me ahead of time, he said, you know, he says, we're having some problems with, I don't really understand, he said, we're having some problems with the theology of our minister, and so uh, I don't know what the deal is. He came to the conference, and I had some lectures that I gave uh, on the Federal Vision there, and he came up to me on the second or third day, and he said, you know, he says, now I understand why we're having problems with this minister. He said, he's fallen into this stuff. And first of all, Bill, I want to say that the Federal Vision is not a uniquely American problem. It expands all, not in its full development now, but in its relationships with other doctrines in the past, it spans all eras of church history, going back even before Christ, uh, and it spans all countries today. I, my book is probably going to be translated into, well, I know it's going to be translated into Russian over the next year, because both in Ukraine and in Russia, I have people begging for this church because they're facing this problem of the federal vision in full force. Uh, I have uh, people in Australia and South Africa who have told me that they're facing it, people over in the UK and other places. So I had some missionaries in my church a couple of weeks ago, and they told me that they're down in Chile. They said, these kinds of things are problems all over the Latin American community. Uh, And so the 
this is a problem that affects the church, but it affects it for this reason above all else, and this is the central point. What the federal vision teaches is contrary to the gospel, and it affects the person in the pew because if people adopt the federal vision views, the person in the pew is no longer going to hear the gospel, uh, and he's going to have the edges of the gospel cut off, things rearranged, uh, and then he's going to have the gospel itself just taken away. Uh, And so it affects everybody, therefore. Uh, And, of course, the way to impact people is to, first of all, write a book that deals with the theological issues in such a way that the people who are trained in the issue can Mm -hmm. see what the real issue is so that they can combat it. But it affects everybody, ultimately. Yep. Totally agree. It does raise another question, and I know we're almost at that time, but um, it's very practical and um, I think helpful, and I'd love your insight on this. Uh, Let's say, hypothetically, that, uh, uh, and you've mentioned already real cases of this, this is what prompts the question, but let's say, hypothetically, someone in the church reads your book, uh, does their own research, and maybe reads other books as well, and and believes, maybe, uh, that their pastor or their elders have have um, sided with the, the, the core substance of what the Federal Vision teaches. What should that member do? You know, this is a very pastoral question, of course. <laughs> uh, a man in church history who has gotten a lot of abuse for a sermon he preached actually has had more influence on the uh, vitality and vigor of the American churches than just probably anybody else or any other sermon ever preached, and that was Gilbert Tennant's sermon the dangers of an unconverted ministry. Uh, And uh, he was really talking about ministers who did not know the Lord, or by the same token, first of all, I say if a man's not preaching the gospel, it's because he doesn't know the Lord. If he Mm. has come to know the Lord, he's going to preach the gospel. And the fact of the matter is, Tennant's sermon caused a groundswell of people all across the country to leave their churches, to go out and hear these revival ministers. Uh, And the result was that there was a great revival uh, that took place. But ever since then, in the American churches, we have believed that if your minister is not preaching the gospel, then you leave there and you go find a gospel church. Should they leave? Should they leave immediately, or should they, or should they seek within their, within their particular, within their membership vows to address the issue before they leave? Uh, they should do the second, but if they cannot get anything done in that way, then they leave. But uh, yes, of course, they should try to to seek that. It's going to be difficult, mm-hmm. and it might end in failure, uh, mm-hmm. as in. Uh, I can give you specific situations across our country today where that has happened, but they should try that, first of all. They should address that issue, and if they can't resolve that, then they leave. Mm -hmm. They can't stay in a a church which is not preaching the gospel. Yep. Well, I wanted to get that in because... um, if, in fact, the people in the pew are going to read this book, and, and if someone out there listening to this program feels as though, uh, through careful prayer and study, we're not talking about running off like a lunatic um, and starting a, a crusade against the pastor or the elders, but if, in fact, in conversation with them and sitting down openly discussing these matters, uh, they land in this position, um, you know, there's there's ways to deal with this in a godly way. And... Um, and in one of the ways is not stir the pot necessarily amongst the other members, but to deal with it with the session, the elders who are responsible for the church. And if you can't get satisfaction there, there are other recourses, of course. You can appeal to your presbytery, um, and you can get them involved and um, see where that takes you. But at the end of the day, if that doesn't accomplish anything, then you can't stay in a church that doesn't preach the gospel. And I think you're absolutely right about that completely. What's been the, the, the response um, thus far to the book, um, good and bad? I know that's a it's always a dangerous question. The good is easy, the bad is more difficult, but um, please tell us. You know, interestingly, the the negative that I've gotten thus far has been primarily concerning some articles that I put on the Aquila Report 
that dealt with the connection between theonomy and the federal vision. Uh, but uh, And I've gotten some kickback from people who are evangelical theonomists and have not gone in the direction of the federal vision. Uh, I disagree with theonomy, but they mm-hmm. have given... Uh, they they try to hold in a very tenuous relationship to both positions. Uh, and then there's some people who have responded against that. Other than that, the feedback has been extremely positive uh, from people who have sat down and read all the way through the book, and that's uh, laymen and ministers alike who have read it, and they have come to a better understanding of the gospel as a result of reading the book. Uh, so that one chapter... Now, there may be other things out there in the Internet world, and I don't spend my days <laughs> trying to comb through every blog that somebody has. So I don't know what else may be There's said, not enough but, days to do that. <laughs> yes. So, you know, uh, I don't know what else is out there, but I will say that what has come to me, uh, there have been some people who have not like the fact that I singled out theonomy. And yet, theonomists for 40 years have not clarified exactly what they mean by theonomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that's their problem to work through, not mine. Uh, Well, it's beyond the scope of the program to talk about theonomy, I think, in in accurate. It just simply means God's law and its due application of of the the moral law of God and the civil ceremonial laws as it applies to the Christian today. And you know, maybe someday we'll do a program on that, but um, but, but I uh, think beyond that, the response has been overwhelmingly positive to my book. Yep. Just just to, to touch back on something you said earlier, um, Doctor Doctor Morton Smith, who is affiliated with Greenville Seminary, was there at the very beginning um, of Greenville Seminary. Uh, did write the foreword to this book, and um, and I'm thankful to have it. It's it's if if anything, it's a helpful resource for me to run to um, when I get the occasional question from people that are in my particular church um, and and I'm able to deal with some of these core issues um, in a in a little wiser probably more in, informed way um, and and so it's a great book just if you just have it on your shelf if you're a minister and you're going to be dealing with these these kinds of questions you can just look up this chapter on imputation you can look up on the, the the discussion on baptismal regeneration or or whatever the case may be and you can give informed answers to your people um, as opposed to just trying to wing it and really not helping anyone so on that that stance alone or for that reason alone I think the book is extremely helpful um, um, but how can can the listeners get a copy of the book well, it is available on Amazon through a secondary uh, source, the, we, but it's also available directly. They can contact me, uh, and that would be to, uh, they can go to a, the website, exposingthefederalvision.org. Uh, that's all one uh, word without any uh, periods or hyphens or anything, exposingthefederalvision.org. Uh, or they can, they can probably just do a Google search on historic Christianity and the Federal Vision by Dewey Roberts, and there'll probably be something in Google that will lead them back to that. But they can order the book from from me for twenty dollars, which includes postage and handling on that. Uh, and uh, I welcome them to do that. Yep, the book is put out by Sola Fide Publications. The website again is exposing the Federal Vision. Dot org, all one word, exposingthefederalvision.org. For those who are listening uh, by bicycle, which I know people do, and jogging and driving their car, they're probably not going to be able to write it down. And please don't. <laughs> Keep driving. Don't worry about right. writing anything down. I will have that link on the website when this program is produced. And, and so it will be there for you to resource and reference um, at the end of the program. Um, so just make note of that and you'll be able to get it there when you get home or wherever you may um, be. It'll also be on the mobile app and um, again, it'll be on the website um, as well. So um, Pastor Roberts, it's been great talking to you about this subject. I, um, I appreciate your passion and your zeal for the, 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 the simplicity of the free offer of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm so thankful it is simple. Um, 
and it's not this convoluted mess that they've created um, that just detracts from the gospel. It's not the gospel, and it reminds me of what Paul told the church in Galatia in chapter 1, and um, and we need to be aware of it. Uh, the gospel's always been under attack. This is not new. <laughs> Right. It's been under attack since the since Genesis three fifteen, and so um, and it will always be under attack um, because we have a powerful enemy out there who hates the kingdom of God, and hates his people. And so, um, but I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us uh, today. Thank you very much, Bill, for having me today. You bet. You hold on the line just a minute while I uh, just give a few wrapping, a few closing remarks. Just want to bring everybody up to date as to um, what is coming up on the program next week. We'll be talking with uh, Dr. Jay Green. Um, he this is discussing the topic of education and particularly the, the particular series that's been put out by PNR, Presbyterian and Reformed publications on and it's titled faithful learning and it's a, it, it's a discussion that links the question of education as as it pertains to our children both in secondary and college level and and the relationship with christianity and 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 many other such tangential matters are discussed in that program following uh, dr green's uh, uh podcast. We'll be sitting down again with Dr. Joseph Piper, the president of Greenville Seminary. He will be back to do the uh, ever-popular monthly edition of Faith and Practice. So if you have questions for Dr. Piper and you want to secure $10 discount to the Banner of Truth um, uh, Trust to get books, then send your question. $10 coupon will come your way, and Dr. Piper will deal with your question on the air. So it's been a very positive and edifying uh, signature series of the podcast, and so I'd encourage you to write in and, and, and submit those questions uh, at the website, confessingourhope.com. The week after, Ken Golden will be on. He has written a very helpful book titled Presbytopia. Don't worry about it if you don't know what that means, because we talk about it. In fact, the program's already been recorded. But he is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and it's a very helpful book, especially as you're introducing uh, new members to Presbyterianism. And it deals with a lot of those subjects that, um, in a very helpful uh, way. Following uh, Ken Golden will be speaking with David Randall on a book uh, titled A Sad Departure. It has to do with the Scottish Church. And so these are just some of the things that are coming up on the program, but there's other things in play, such as the series that we're working on on um, great men of the Reformed faith, as well as graduate spotlights. So if you want to know more information, you can go to our website, confessingourhope.com. There, all the information is neatly laid out for you. Um, including uh, ways to get the GPTS mobile app, um, to listen to chapel sermons, the theology conference. In addition to that, you can also listen to some of these programs live as they're happening. This was was not one of them, but um, typically the the ones with Dr. Piper are live, and so you can find out how to do that there at the website. So until next time, when we sit down and and talk with um, Dr. Jay Green on the question of education and the Christian, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and God bless.